Welcome to the podcast. And for today, we only want happy, entertaining and interesting stories. It will be a bit of a different format and I hope you will join us in this storyline. So let's start with dogs. I know there are quite a few dog, lo dog lovers that are listening into this podcast. And as a very first issue, should we feed Fido falafel is the question <laughs> because a story... A study now shows that dogs on a vegan diet are healthier as long as they get the right nutrition. The study of more than 2,500 pets showed that those on a vegan diet are healthier and visit the vet less often as long as they got all the right nutrition. So uh, no more bones for your pouch. Past studies, the canine tasting test, show that they really can't tell the difference. What about that, Alistair? <laughs> well, I've uh, whenever I've opened a can of dog food, Alex, it's um smelt pretty horrible. So yeah, falafel I think would be a better option in many ways. We don't have a dog. I don't think you do either, do you? No, um, a cat. <laughs> a cat, right? <laughs> but but I guess I'd, I can I'd certainly consider putting on a, a vegan diet if I did. I mean, why not? It sounds like a good idea. Um, it could be a massive help, you know, it reduces the same way as people going over to vegetarian and vegan diets means there's less land is needed for um, for raising cattle and pigs and sheep and things, doesn't it? And um, there are an awful lot of pets around in the world. Um, by one estimate, there's 470 million pet dogs in the world. And um, but, you know, maybe an increasing number are also considering changing their di animals diets as well as their human diets. Um, this could be, you know, about $9 billion um, of vegan pet food was sold worldwide um, in, in 2020. And so this sector is growing fast, you know. I, but I, I kind of worry. My sister, I know, lives in the countryside in, in southwest England and has a dog that runs around. It loves chasing squirrels, rabbits, pheasants, you know, even deer through the countryside there. So... You know, if she puts her dog on a vegan diet, I'm a bit worried she'll have to fence off her vegetable patch instead. <laughs> and, and the dog gets a taste for veganism and goes hunting for a tomato, squashes, potatoes and peas, you know. <laughs> so. When I grew up, we used to have a, a, a lovely dog. I have no idea what you call that, uh, that breed in English. But um, she, um, and she was, of course, always chasing rabbits. In those days, we still had rabbits. There was no myxomatosis yet, or it, it, it was going around, but we still had rabbits in the Netherlands. By now, most of them died out, and they have hardly any impact on the ecolo ecology anymore. But um, And for years, I was growing strawberries, until one day, she saw me in the garden picking a strawberry and eating it. And the dog had always just ran through the strawberries without paying it and giving it any attention but then she tried it as well and then she became a strawberry eating dog and <laughs> i could never grow and eat my own strawberries anymore because she was eating all of them <laughs> so um but yeah so i have a cat uh called luna and she often figures on um on my um my Substack newsletter and uh, she's the only eat uh, the only meat eater uh, in the house so uh I I don't have really meat in the house. I can't stand it, but uh, I know meat is used to make the the dry cat food uh, that she is eating. And uh, and of course, I did a bit of research, and I found this uh, quote from a vegan who wanted her Labrador um, uh, to make her Labrador a vegan as well. And she posted that on social media. 
with the picture of her dog, and then saying in a quote here, on the menu for Maggie tonight is pureed sweet potato, pureed brown rice, sprouted organic tofu, chia seeds, and digestive enzymes. Doesn't she look <laughs> excited? And then the picture next to it, you should see the the face of the dog. It was just, just looking so sad. Um, <laughs> I'm, 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 I, I will never eat meat, but I think for animals it might be different. So, uh, so what I've found about meatless diets for cats and dogs is that it's possible for dogs, but it's extremely hard to get it right for cats. But if you, if you want to get your pets on a meatless diet, you really have to know what you're doing. Um, you have to do lots of research. You have to work closely together with the vet, and you should be prepared to to give it up as soon as there are signs of of deficiency problems or skin problems that uh, that your pet might get. So, but the point seems to be that um, cats are so difficult um, because they cannot produce certain proteins as one that's called taurine. They cannot produce that oh. themselves. They instead have to absorb it from their food. So with beef and chicken and fish, they 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 get they get this uh, taurine that they need. So cats don't that don't get enough taurine, they get all kinds of diseases, including a, a fatal condition, uh, which is called DCM. And uh, that means that uh, cats are are basically not, not able to, to live when they get that because their muscles become too thin and too weak and then they can't they can't get oxygen, they can't pump their blood. So it's a, a fatal disease, and and yeah, personally, I wouldn't risk uh, my dear Luna to get a fatal disease just because I so desperately uh, want her to become vegan, which is something that <clears throat> cats simply aren't. Cats are hunters; they hunt just like their big brothers, the lions and the tigers. I mean, you're you're not gonna ask them to eat carrots instead, right? And instead of the the animals that they're hunting for, so. So if you want to do something with nature, you have to stay a bit closer to nature. So, um, so my cat uh, still gets uh, meat-based uh, products, and uh, yeah. So, so what about what about you, Alistair? What about the dogs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the problem also is that um, you know, dog cows have huge, long digestive tracts, don't they? Because they're because they are you know they're they're eating and chewing the cud, and it has to go in and out of their stomachs and so on. And they have huge, long digestive tracts, whereas animals that eat meat have very much shorter digestions. So, uh, you know, dog may not have a long enough um, enough time in its in its stomach and its intestines to 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 do it. But but then again, part of the reason dogs went from the wild to becoming our companions because of the food that was offered if they came close to the campfire, and that food wasn't always meat. You know, in the wild, in the wild, wolves obviously do eat meat, but they're they're also known to eat eggs, berries, and even grass if vitamins are lacking. That you know, they're sort of omnivorous, um, trying to eat everything that they can. And dogs may have adapted to diet to diets with less meat and more plant starch. You know, so crucially, they've got amylase genes, which means they can digest plant starch, and and that may be an adaptation for from sitting around the campfire. Waiting for some one of our one of my ancestors or one of your ancestors to chuck them a bone at the end of the meal and hope that they'll you know they'll they'll hang around and bark if a if a bear comes along and, and attacks our camp so so maybe dogs are at an advantage when to to moving from a meat free to to a meat free diet um, compared to cats but um, 
there are some warnings that you know it's not that simple um you know there are um, meat uh, animal product free food is sometimes difficult to make and there have been product recalls because of contaminants by some makers so you know daniel dos santos i see was a former president of the british veterinary association said it's theoretically possible to feed a dog a vegetarian diet but it's much easier to get it wrong than to get it right um you know you got to do it right um so you know good luck to anybody out there putting their their dogs on a, a vegan diet it'll help the planet but um yeah. make sure your dog's happy too yeah i believe so too yeah by the way i had promised one of the listeners we would talk about penguins so i'm going to steer you in direction of penguins today <laughs> yeah right that's a, we love talking about penguins don't we on this podcast <laughs> We've had quite a few peng penguins items on, on <laughs> yes, this podcast yes, yes. so yeah there was a great story in the new york times this week about how adeli penguins um, were doing well on the eastern side of the antarctic peninsula that's the northernmost part of antarctica like a snake-like bit sticking up towards um south america even though they're declining on the west as the sea warms up perhaps there so you know these adeli penguins are small penguins that look a bit like they're wearing tuxedos they bounce around they jump around but they're wearing black and white they've got black and white suits they're kind of charming little um little creatures um, but it, the, the reason the scientists put forward is that say, they say there's still a lot of ice on the on the eastern side of the peninsula, and that helps the birds. Um, they quote one of the um, one of the uh, one of the uh, the authors of the study, Heather Lynch, who's a statistical ecologist, whatever that is, at Stony Brook University, saying, "Where the climate climate has not changed as dramatically, the populations have not changed dramatically either." So that's maybe it, you know. The, wherever it stays cold in this planet as we've discussed it often is overheating uh, the penguins are doing okay yeah yeah that's that's good to know it's full of interesting facts these these um adelis are are named after adele um also named ali that was the two first names that she used and, and she was the wife of the french uh, antarctic explorer jules dumont d'urville who discovered them in 1840, and it's it's the smallest of the Antarctic penguins, um, but it it can defend itself against far bigger threats like seals and big seabirds and uh, and even people with its uh, wings. So you may wonder why he gave his wife's name to a penguin. So <laughs> I dived into his family story, and Jules lost his father sadly when he was just six years old, and. Um, then there was his mother, but historians are for once united in their um, in, in in their opinion that his mother was not very nice, really. Uh, she's described as rigid and a formal woman with uh, an ancient uh, family tree um, of the rural nobility of Lower Normandy, of which she was uh, very uh, proud. Um, but from yeah, what I can find in my uh, research, he may not have been too fond of his mother either, just like those historians. Um, he never named any land or even some some horrid rock or something after after his <laughs> uh, his mother, which although you you meet a lot as an explorer that you can name after your mother. But he did find happiness with his wife, and she was called Adele Pepin. And um, not Adele Penguin, but Adele Pepin, <laughs> who, um, who doesn't that mean cucumber in French? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yes. doesn't that mean cucumber in French? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tying yeah. it back to the dogs. 
<laughs> and uh, she she's remembered uh, by the the elderly penguin. So um, her mother was so disappointed with her son marrying the daughter of a watchmaker instead of all kinds of nobility and ancient family history trees. She was the daughter of a watchmaker, and I think he met her in Toulon. And um, uh, so the mother refused to come to the wedding, and she also refused to ever meet uh, one of his uh, four children, or at wow. least the four children that we know of. So forgetting his mother and, and putting all focus on his wife, he gave names to his uh, discovery. So there's like Adélie Land, there's Adele Island, there's also a Cape Pepin, um, these were all named in honor of his wife, and he uh, he never named the penguin species after his wife, which I think is also a bit of a cruel thing to do, that, that who would call a penguin after his wife. But these penguins were discovered on Adelie land and therefore given that name. So as you may know, uh, I always like to, to read and write about islands, and, and um, like so many explorers, Jules Dumont d'Orville has an island named after him. It's Durville Island. Um, it's, I think, the eighth biggest island in New Zealand, but New Zealand basically has only two big islands, so this island is not really very big. There's just north of New Zealand's uh, South Island. Um, it has only some 50 inhabitants. And the interesting thing is that it's ecologically very interesting because this island is free of possums and, and feral goats, and there's no ship rats and there's no Norway rats and uh, or or weasels and that makes it ecologically very important because a lot of species that uh, especially rats have been ferocious in, in killing all kinds of uh, birds um, there's there's a lot of more original um, uh, animals uh, that, that that used to live uh, also elsewhere in new zealand that are still alive there so that makes this a very interesting island yeah, indeed. Now we're coming towards an interesting intersection in history here, because in the early 1830s, when Jules Dumont d'Urville had returned to Paris to write his five volumes about his voyage of discovery, um, at the very same time, Charles Darwin um, left in the 1830s for the trip around the world on the Beagle. That would make him world famous many years later for developing the theory of evolution. His five-year voyage around the world on the Beagle uh, lasting until 1836 gave him his the basis of the research that helped him develop the theory of evolution and natural selection, especially his visit to the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific uh, off Ecuador, which I visited there once. It was a fabulous experience wow. seeing that. But, you know, he was Darwin was very concerned that the public would not accept his, his deeply radical idea in a, in, a, in a century when many people believed that the Earth had been created um, by God in 4004 BC, according to readings of the Bible, the earth is only 6,000 years old, which would mean that evolution over that t short time would be impossible. So so he, he sort of stuck this, his theory in a drawer um, until 1858, when he made a joint announcement with uh, his, his friend, fellow British nationalist, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was about to go public with a similar concept to Darwin's. Uh, Wallace had fatally, in a way, written to Darwin about his theory. Wallace had developed it separately, independently, uh, and Darwin was probably the last person he should have sent it to because otherwise he might have got the credit for it. Um, but it, as it turned out, Darwin was a much more eminent scientist. And the next year, 1859, w Darwin 
published his seminal work on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favoured races in the struggle for life, um, to give it its full title. Um, we normally now call it just the origin of species, don't we? Or on the origin of species, to give it a bit of a snappier um, snappier title, like War and Peace or something. <laughs> Novelists have got a better idea about how to, how to title books these days. Uh, and now this week, Darwin was back in the news suddenly. Uh, the man who explained the world explained to the world the mystery of evolution seems to be part of a new mystery, uh, the mystery of the missing notebooks. Uh, so he once sketched the tree of life in a small notebook, and in doing so he took the first step towards solving one of humanity's greatest mysteries, evolution, which has been proven, of course, over and over again in peer-reviewed scientific research. Uh, still seems a mystery to quite a few people. I see you see opinion polls in the United States. I think that show roughly forty percent of people don't believe in evolution, um, which is pretty shocking uh, level of scientific knowledge, isn't it? But That's anyway, really shocking. Uh, yeah. yeah. Two hundred years later, the librarians at the University of Cambridge have got this un another unsolvable question about how did two of his extremely valuable notebooks, which disappeared, were stolen, presumably. 22 years ago, suddenly reappear in perfect condition in a pink, pink gift bag outside the head librarian's office. It's, it's got all the, it's, it could be Sherlock Holmes, it could be Agatha Christie, it could be anything here, couldn't it? These small leather-bound notebooks, which included Darwin's famous 1837 sketch, had gone missing back in the year 2000. They were initially thought to be misshelved. They could just have disappeared, staffed, carried out huge searches in the library, which are home to about 10 million books, maps, manuscripts and other items, trying to find, find, these, uh, find these notebooks. But in 2020, that's, that's 18 years after they went missing, uh, they were reported as stolen to Cambridgeshire Police. They then launched an investigation and even notified Interpol, while the university made a worldwide appeal for information. Now we go fast forward 18 months, and the two books have just re-emerged uh, this month after the elusive thief, perhaps, or maybe somebody with a guilty conscience, a researcher, perhaps, um, somebody returned them in pristine condition in this pink gift bag wrapped in cling film uh, alongside a printed note reading librarian.happyeaster.x. Now, <laughs> there's, there's your only clue. They were deposited outside the the office in an area that was um, free of um, surveillance cameras, so they don't they don't have any records, as far as I know, of who brought these bags in. Um, they were left on the floor at a public area of the library on the morning of March the ninth. The police investigation to the notebook's disappearance and subsequent return is ongoing. This was only announced just a few days ago. <laughs> it's extraordinary. It's an, it's an amazing story. Yeah. And it's uh, my, my personal, um, uh, my, my very first guess of what I hear on this story is that it's somebody working in that library that uh, that, that may have done this. Uh, but who am I to accuse anyone? But you, you need to have quite a few insights on where to find the stuff. Uh, it is somebody who has a passion for books because uh, that person took very good care of the books and probably felt guilty and therefore gave it back. And then knew where to put it and to avoid all the cameras um it's uh yeah it's it's quite a quite a story 
uh, the easy way would have been to just go to DHL and 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 send it uh, to them and and do that anonymously. But that was too risky with something so valuable. So it must be somebody who really cares about the book. So it's it's yeah. um, it's a Good fascinating uh, yeah. question. They they might solve it with nowadays DNA techniques, etc. They might <laughs> they might find something that uh, yes. the thief hadn't thought about. Or the lender, or whatever. But um, yeah, so I just spoke about this this uh, this marriage of uh, Jules Dumont de Ville. Um, uh, but what about Darwin? I I know that the man got most excited uh, actually about worms. Uh, that was his real passion. But uh, but was he was he happily married? Well, from what I know, I think he was more progressive on evolution than on marriage or the role of women in society. <laughs> Um, his wife was also a devout Christian um, to whom his theories of evolution were probably horrific. Um, a decade ago, I went to a course at Harvard with Janet Brown, who's a, a, an expert, a world-renowned expert on Darwin. And um, her theory, when she, was, she said this always came up in classes about how, um, um, she, uh, how, how Darwin came and, and, his, and his, his wife, Emma, Came came along, got, got on together when the, when the theory of evolution came up, and because uh, it conflicted with her religious beliefs, no doubt that uh, the world was created six thousand years ago. But she, her theory was this is sort of just a place that they didn't go over the dinner table. Uh, they had ten children together. Sadly, three of them died in in childhood, but they probably had enough to talk about over the dinner table, just talking about the kids and. Um, <laughs> you know who's going to buy a new pair of socks for? Um, <laughs> for where are they going to go? Where how are they going to? You know, what are they going to have for dinner tomorrow? So, but he did write an amazing list um, before he got married, um, which was the for and against on deciding who to marry. Um, I think this would be probably the death of anybody by, to write this down these days. But um, he had a, a logical inclination, even in matters of the heart. So in 1838, he wrote down the list of two columns with the upsides and downsides of marriage. Um, in the marry column was children, constant companion, brackets, and friend in old age, better than a dog, anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> and someone to take care of house. And in the not marry ledger, he said, freedom to go where one, want, where one liked, conversation of clever men at clubs, and loss of time. So, <laughs> not on Darwin's list, however, were family ties because he married his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood, Emma, Emma, Emma Wedgwood in 1839. So, she, so this, the four in favour column came out on top, which was good. Uh, this, is, uh, this is amazing. So, I guess the conversation, the clever conversation, you cannot do with a woman, of course, so therefore you have to meet men <laughs> in a club. And... But at least it's very positive of him to say that um, the companionship was better than a dog. So, oh gosh. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah, he was more modern in evolution, I guess. Yes. So, um, yeah, so all that knowledge of evolution did not really lead to uh, to other important insights, uh, in including on genetics. I mean, marrying your niece may not be a boost to, to, to a new diversity in the genes, I would say. And... Um, yeah, so he is, uh, and his wife has to take care of the house. I love this. Um, yes. So <laughs> this is maybe a good moment to reveal that Darwin never coined the phrase survival of the fittest. And in in the past year that I've been writing so much and that I've been, been doing so many podcasts, 
I constantly find that a famous quote of somebody, as soon as you as you do a little bit of research, within minutes you find out that that person never did that quote. So I, I wonder, maybe I should someday make a list of quotes that were really actually said by the famous person, because in nine out of ten times they never said it. So the survival of the fittest was later used by Darwin, but it was first used by an English philosopher, Herbert Spencer, in, the, in his uh, Principles of Biology. And he wanted to, to bridge his, his economic and sociological theories with Darwin's biological concepts, which are, sounds like something that ran horribly out of hand in the 1930s. Uh, but there seems to be like an early um, innocent uh, step in that direction, but I don't know too much about uh, the work of Herbert Spencer. And, um, and only five years later, Darwin adopted the phrase in his fifth edition of The Origin of Species, which still had that horrible long title, as you said, the books <laughs> in those days. And I, have, I have a passion for the island of uh, Pitcairn, which is a, a, a tiny little island of just four and a half square kilometers uh, somewhere west of, um, of Easter Island of Rapa Nui, I should say. And uh, that's where the mountaineer of the the mountaineers of the of the bounty uh, landed in seventeen ninety one, and um, that is um, uh, that's that's uh, so so I I've like a full bookshelf of books about it. So one book I found was not written not too long after it was about about eighteen forty. It was written, so I paid way too much money for it. And that is um, by then a book about the history of the island of. Pitcairn, but the title of the book is like half a page. I mean, the whole front cover is basically a title. It's something like <laughs> the history of Pitcairn, including this and that and that, and including the narrative of so and so person, and including a description of. And it just goes on and on and on. And um, someday, if I uh, if I don't know what to podcast about, I'm just going to read the title of that book. So then I have already two minutes. <laughs> Already written. So um, yeah, but I I love this notebook story, and it's it's a bit like uh, this mystery within a mystery. So it's it's uh, the, and the Brits love that. So they're they're still trying to find out where Agatha Christie went those ten missing days in her life, and that was such a good thing of her just to take a ten ten day break without telling anybody in which hotel she was staying, because people are still writing novels about that. So probably we will someday find. Uh, books about the missing notebooks of um, of Darwin and it can be a, a wonderful mystery novel. And his career, Darwin's career, is very interesting because uh, for many decades, nobody would ever have predicted that he would become known as uh, one of the greatest scientists of all time. And while uh, Jules Dumont d'Urville, who was a little bit older, was sailing the Pacific Ocean and naming discoveries after his beloved uh, wife Adele, Darwin was preparing to start studying medicine in Edinburgh. His father was a, quite a famous doctor. And Dar Darwin found lectures really dull and surgery was just distressing for him. So he completely ne neglected his studies too, and his, his father was quite angered about it. And instead he learned uh, taxidermy, so to, to how to preserve dead animals and, and be able to display them from uh, John Edmundstone who was a freed black slave who had accompanied Charles Waterton in the South American rainforest. Um, so therefore knew how to very quickly prepare those animals because in a, in a rainforest you have no time to lose uh, if, uh, for, for, for this job. 
And what Darlin learned from, from Eppenstone helped him later greatly during the voyage of, uh, of the Beagle, in the, for instance, in, in, in the finches that he collected, which is uh, part of his most famous uh, stories. And those had to be prepared and conserved as well in a, in a hot um, uh, climate where there's no fridge on board. And um, so in Darwin's second year at the university, he joined the Plinian Society. And that was a student natural history group. And there, in 1827, Darwin presented at his, his, uh, his own discovery that the black spores that are found in oyster shells were the eggs of a, a skate leech. Um, that, is, uh, that is amazing, because this is one of the first indications that Darwin liked to do this kind of research and, uh, instead of becoming a doctor. So I think that was a, a key moment in history that is not really recognized in the history books. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're tying in together now with uh, oysters and other, as you said, mentioned them. Um, uh, in the true spirit of Charles Darwin 200 years ago. Um, here we've discovered that oysters, the University of Virginia has discovered that oyster reefs are almost wiped out by centuries of neglect, but they can be restored in just six years, according to marine experts at the university. Um, you know, oysters build up very quickly. They're used in um, around New York Harbor now as well to, as a part of a project to um, to build up against sea level rise. You can oysters grow extraordinarily fast. We have them here where I'm living in Oslo in the Oslo Fjord. They're taking over. The, the Pacific oysters have been, become an invasive species. They grow really quickly. Um, but they've made this um, amazing discovery that ruined oyster reefs can be restored. Even what they call functionally extinct reefs that have lost up to 85% of their population can come back quickly, the study, the study shows. So this is by... Um, Virginia, the University of Virginia and, and the Nature Conservancy shows that they can, you know, just six years of care match the populations of natural reef oysters. So we have, you know, these oysters uh, reefs form along coasts, along tidal, tidal flats and sandbars. They're a natural barrier protecting the shore from erosion and, and waves. So if they're healthy enough to do so, and they can, they can even grow higher and higher and higher to build up sediment along the coasts and a uh, good protection against uh, sea level rise. Um, so, but of course, you know, we've had over harvesting and disease devastating oyster populations over the last two centuries. Um, I wonder when people started eating oysters off the east coast of the United States, actually, I know that seafood was very much looked down to, wasn't it, by the, by the early colonists and um, in the first years of uh, settlement of North America from, by Europeans. But anyway, the, the study says that numerous wild oyster populations are now considered uh, to be functionally extinct as a result of this overfishing, but that you know, just by coming around and protecting them a little bit better can lead to this extraordinary rebound in oysters. And um, they don't mention um, any pearls in this, but you never know. You know there might be pearls out there too. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Yeah, it's interesting that those early settlers in North America, that they didn't didn't pay attention to uh, to the oysters that were around because it is such an easy way to to get food and and uh, that's actually the reason that when the first people left Africa, which uh, which is now some let's say when when they successfully did it, it was probably about seventy thousand years ago. 
The first thing they did was to walk all the way to Australia. They could have gone anywhere, so once they crossed over, which surprisingly was not at Suez, but was um, uh, most likely from, let's say, Somalia to Yemen. And that is the way they finally, it was probably just one family in, in what people think. And then they could have gone anywhere. Okay, so they were finally out of Africa. They'd, they'd been in Africa for about 140,000 uh, years. And finally, uh, they escaped successfully out of Africa. They tried before, but now finally humans got out of Africa. And they could go anywhere. So you're standing in Yemen, and you could go wherever you want to go in the world, uh, except for the Western Hemisphere, which was not connected. And, uh, and what did they do? They walked, they followed the coastline. So they followed like Iran and then Pakistan and India and then all the way down, um, all the way to, to, to PNG and to Australia. And why did they do that? Well, the theory is that the, the easiest way to get reliable food is to stay, to follow the coastline because you can always find, especially in warm countries, you can always find some oysters or some kind of similar shell food uh, that you can uh, survive on. You don't need to do farming. You don't have to hunt on the lions and the tigers or whatever else for your food. So those um, those early uh, settlers in North America, they were extremely unsuccessful. Um, they uh, so, so the first settlement in, um, uh, in, uh, in Plymouth, they lost half of their people uh, in the first year. So it's a horrible number. So they should have eaten a few oysters. And, and, um, and lobsters, right, as well, yes. And, and, they, and lobsters, yeah, yeah lobsters. Yeah. I mean, they, they still, they love it there in Maine and in Newfoundland, etc. I would never eat a lobster, poor animals, throwing them alive <laughs> and burning water in the Horrible, yeah. water. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so does Darwin's, uh, so his, his, his oysters uh, that he researched 2,000 years ago are still alive, but um, uh, do, do you actually know, know what happened to Darwin and, and Jules uh, Dumont-Dorville? <laughs> I have no idea, Alex. Those are, those are the two heroes of today. <laughs> the so two heroes of today. I did a bit of research on what happened to these guys. And um, so they they, uh, they both ended up uh, in quite famous burial places in London and Paris. So uh, Darwin, a clear winner, uh, getting the most prestigious place. He is He's buried in inside Westminster Abbey. So he passed away in 1882. And his family began preparations to bury him in a village where he had spent uh, the last 40 years of his life. And, and well, since he loves worms, uh, anyway, I guess burying them would be a good thing for him. But anyway, um, uh, Darwin's uh, friends and, and colleagues then began a lobby campaign to give him the high honor of a burial inside London's Westminster Abbey. And they were successful because the, the newspapers and, and the public uh, joined this campaign and the Dean of Westminster then gave his approval. So a week after he had passed away in April uh, 1882, he was laid to rest in England's most revered church. And, and so he's laying now close to fellow scientists like, like John Herschel and, and Isaac Newton. So if he would have known this, he would have been uh, quite honored, I would say. But the, the end mm. of uh, Jules Dumont and his family is really very tragic. So um, although he was uh, older than, um, uh, yeah, he was, he was older than Darwin, but he, he died much earlier. He died already in uh, May 1842. So this is, imagine, this is the explorer who had survived trips all over the world, had been to Antarctica in the really, really early days when, when nobody landed there. Even James Cook, who was probably the best sailor ever in, in just, just 
one and a half generation before him, had never set foot on Antarctica. Worse, he had never seen Antarctica. And uh, so this man who had survived so much, he boarded the train from Versailles to Paris together with his family. And then uh, the train's locomotive derailed and the wagons rolled over and the the coal in, in the locomotive ended up to the front of the train. You can imagine that when a train makes a, s- a sudden crash that all the coal moved forward oh, wow. onto the fire that you had in, in those days. Uh, so it became uh, a, a massive fire all over the train. Um, his whole family died, in, including he, he himself and his wife and at least one son. And um, so this was the first really large-scale railway disaster in France. And uh, it was actually the worst railway disaster in the world at in that time. In the world, wow. Yeah. And uh, so what, what happened uh, then as a decision taken uh, as, as a result of the inquiry is something we still see today. They don't lock passengers up in their carriages, which used to be the case. You were, you were locked up and then the thing drove off, um, which is when the whole thing ignites into a fire is not a very good way. They have no clue how many people died. It could be anywhere between 50 and 200 um, because it was all unrecognizable. Um, and he is buried in the cemetery of uh, Montparnasse in, in Paris. Wow. This history is so fascinating. You've done a great job looking up the history and the interwoven histories of these two totally different characters who formed our sort of understanding of modern history, of modern uh, biology and evolution. Goodness, how how do we end up here? Um, We started off talking about vegetarian, vegan food for dogs, and then we moved to cats. Uh, Then we talked about penguins. and (laughs) Yeah, and I think there we really took off because this... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this this penguin then brought us to the Adelie penguin and then so therefore to the wife of Jules Dumont. And then I think from so from penguins to Adelie and then to Jules and then we went to his travels and then we even discussed his nasty mother. And then we uh, jumped to Charles Darwin because he did his voyage in the Beagle around the same time also starting on, on in the direction of uh, Antarctic. Um, and actually sailed Cape Horn. And uh, that was, uh, the, I think Charles Darwin left in the year that um, uh, that uh, Dumont was, uh, was, was writing on his book. He was just back. And then there was, of course, the oyster research of Darwin, and that brought us then to this oyster story of the University of Virginia. And uh, actually, there were a lot of side trails that we could have walked today, but, <laughs> but we, we might leave them for another time. But I think, for instance, this... This John Appenstone is fascinating. We that so that's if you, if you remember earlier in when we were talking, I mentioned him as he was the the black man in uh, in England who taught Darwin taxidermy. So how to mm. how to how to set up that animal. So his story is amazing. I should write about it someday. So he he was born as a slave in uh, in the in the West Indies. So I think he was born in in Guyana. And uh, so his owner, as it sounds weird to pronounce this, but yeah. he was a slave, so there was an owner uh, who was a Scottish man, and he uh, whose whose name uh, was Edmundstone. So he his name was given to to the slaves as well. He went back to Scotland, and he took this slave with him. And since he arrived in the UK, where slavery was forbidden, 
he became a free man in England. And since while he was still a slave, he had joined his expedition in South America in catching all kinds of birds. Uh, he knew how to how to quickly preserve birds and how to how to set them up for for display. So that was a unique skill um, that nobody had done because nobody in the in the UK had the, these kind of these kind of skills. So what happened was that he became very well known and quite educated. And uh, so as as you know as as the career moves that he made in his life is is fascinating. So, so there you have a well-known black man uh, being appreciated for his unique knowledge and skills in the UK in about, um, we're talking about the early 1830s, when uh, slavery in, in, in the rest of the world, certainly in, in, in the US, is, is still at... at at, at the height of, of, of it's, it's essential for the economy, at least the people thought so, and, and, and all the abuses that were taking place. And this guy was already in that position, which is fascinating to, to read about. So that would be a, a line we could have taken as well, and we could have spoken much <laughs> more about that. And then all the islands that Dumont discovered, um, that, that would have been inter another interesting part. Or mm. uh, what about the cemeteries in London and Paris? I mean, we could have easily jumped... Uh, from uh, the cemetery in Paris uh, to Père Lachaise Cemetery, and that would probably bring us to the question whether Jim is still alive. Um, and because wherever you go, you see all these signs on Père Lachaise with uh, to the to the grave of Jim Morrison, and uh, just uh, says uh, an arrow with Jim wherever basically on any any grave uh, gravestone that you see. And from there, we yeah. could have jumped to Memphis. See if, if if Elvis is still alive, right? Um, yeah. Or Chopin, who's buried there as well. And and Chopin would have brought us to another island. We could have spoken about Mallorca, and uh, from there to George Sand, who who is who's actually not buried on Père Lachaise, uh, but um, she's in 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 some village in the middle of France. She's buried, but uh, yeah, there's a there's I think still a campaign going on uh, to move her remains to the Pantheon, but that is uh, that is still. Uh, undecided or pending or maybe it's just uh, uh, it's it's not accepted i don't know um, so we could go on forever but i don't maybe we should we should stop here today i'm, I'm looking at the comments yeah anything is coming Let's in there um, uh, marianne says i looked this up why was darwin's boat called the beagle uh -huh, about yes. the hms beagle it was a cherokee class 10 gun boat of great britain's royal navy Named after the beagle, a type of dog. So that brings that's Indeed. another connection, right? So we're back at the dogs. Well, only maybe vegan, vegan food on board, yeah. <laughs> and the boat set off in 1820 from the Royal Dockland of Woolwich at the River Thames at a cost of just seven thousand pounds. Was amazing. That's and, amazing. Um, Thank you. That is uh, wonderful. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Marianne, for uh, for always. Uh, looking everything up uh, and uh, and helping out yeah. uh, with with these kind of things. I have no idea, by the way, how Marianne can be writing here while I don't see her on the screen. Um, something I have to work out later on. That's great. Um, so it seems that Marianne is listening in uh, and can write, but I don't see her uh, listening. Or maybe she was there and left. I don't know. 
Um, I worked in I worked in Paris on the twenty fifth anniversary of Jim Morrison's death, death, and I went to the I worked for the Reuters, the news agency then, and went to to see people at his gravestone on on that day, twenty five years after he died, and this would have been in nineteen ninety six, twenty five years on, and there were so many people there. Um, <laughs> most of them were crying. I didn't come across very many who thought he was still alive. But uh, I, I can remember a Dutch couple there, or, or rather a Dutch woman and her daughter, who were both uh, big Doors fans, who were both crying by the grave. It was an extraordinary day. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. Yeah, yeah I've been there once too. Ago. I mean, who hasn't been at, at Jim's grave? But um, uh, there were just guys sitting there drinking, uh, drinking beer and and uh, and having a good time. And they put on the radio and they played their doors tapes, and yeah, um, yeah so that's <laughs> it's it's quite a thing. And then I walked a bit further and found the grave of Chopin. And there was a, a group of Polish tourists who were uh, singing around the grave of Chopin. And there was quite a bit of a contrast to um, to the the people that went to uh, Jim Morrison's grave. Um, I'm particularly a fan about both musicians, although I I, I do admit that the, uh, that the taste is a bit um, is a, uh, of, of music is a bit a bit far apart. Um, and Sharon says she's been to Graceland three times, and I can attest that Elvis Ghost is alive and well. He's in the jungle room. <laughs> the jungle room. <laughs> Thanks, oh, that's Sharon. Yeah. <laughs> Elvis is alive. Elvis lives. That's good. I knew yeah. it. I knew it. That's, so he cannot yes. be together with Jim in heaven. That's a pity. Yeah. Would, would be an interesting combination, by the way, those two. I know. That would be the most uplifting thing to have. We've tried to sort of focus on happy stories here, haven't we, in this podcast today. But Elvis lives would be the best. <laughs> yeah. It should be titled the podcast Elvis is alive. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, guys, I I thanks so much for um, for for joining. Um, uh, this I, I think this one was a bit different than in, in other times, and um, at least we enjoyed it a lot. So so I yeah, I, I might put a few things on paper about this one. I don't know yet if I find the time. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, this is kind of a more uplifting one that we've we've tended to. We've spoken a lot about Syria and the fallout of the war there in inevitably in recent podcasts haven't we we talked about the ipcc and most of the news on the climate front is pretty grim but um there is some there is some fascinating uplifting fun stories around about the environment and about this wonderful planet we live on too so we've we try to focus on a few of those here today so it's been yeah. great thanks alex for so, so we should do we should do a vote amongst the audience and uh, <laughs> or you can just you can just write whether you like uh, these kind of positive stories with history and fun and science, etc. Or if you prefer the IPCC report, or if you prefer a mix of those, um, or if you prefer those monologues that I do in the weekends, because I don't want to 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 get uh, Alistair and Vanessa away from from their uh, their fun in the weekends. In the weekend, I just do it alone and I just open the microphone and start talking, often without much of a without much of a plan. So we have quite a few. Uh, different tastes here so all feedback is always welcome thanks so much uh for those of you that have been uh that have been writing i see one more comment from marianne saying alexander it's magic computer science is moving forward and evelyn says i love the positive stories she needed those, needed today. those today that's okay. nice thank you that, evelyn. Is, that is good i hope that they, <laughs> they helped okay guys uh thanks so much um 
tomorrow i might be on here but certainly somewhere in the weekend uh oh i wanted to say something if you're still if you're still there um they made a, a new update uh again like like every two weeks or so on call-in and if you go to the home page uh there is uh they, they added a few things on the top uh on the top bar uh, one is the calendar which i think is really very good that you can now just see when what shows are taking place so it's uh, that's that's really an improvement and the other one is the thing next to it i'm not sure if i can reach it from where i am i see if i can yes i can so uh in the middle on, on the home screen in the middle on the top uh you see the calendar and the one directly right of it with that text balloon is where all kinds of this kind of message board uh thing where people can 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 leave all kinds of messages i'm not really sure how it works but it's another interesting thing and then you get your messages uh thing which says that um charlie mentioned me in a comment but i'm not sure what comment i'll work it out later and it says that five people subscribe to the podcast that is good news too and um and then you have your messages so that is one of the latest uh, improvements on this app so it's uh, it's good to, to keep track. Oh, yeah, and one other thing I want to mention. The discovery page has become really good. So if you're on, at the bottom, you have this uh, magnifying glass that has now, since today, a completely different outlook. So it says, um, for instance, um, I see that under trending episodes, uh, I see myself popping up, but maybe they've made it in such a way that... Oh, hey. For everybody, it pops up that their own name pops up as being friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Just for our own ego. That's nice. But what I want to say is like, they not only promote shows now, but they only promote episodes. Uh, so that is, I, I think that is, uh, it becomes much more interesting now to browse around and that you don't only see uh, those one or two shows that are always advertised, but now it's it's become much more diverse. I think that's another improvement. So that is uh, just some last words that I wanted to say about all this. Um, thanks, Heiko, for joining at the last moment. I hope you can listen back. I'll publish this in about 15 minutes uh, so that you can listen to the whole show. But glad that you could also join. Uh, Amira is coming back as well. So we got eight people together. Okay, that's it for today. Any thanks last words from you, Alistair? No, thanks, everyone. That was a lot of fun, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> this was fun indeed. Okay, guys, hope to see you back soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.